Prospect Lives. Seven Voices on Modern Britain. I can vividly recall the occasional ecstasy of my past. The blanket of snow made the farm look like a postcard. I just hope my memory returns. Welcome to Prospect Lives, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a family of regular prospect writers filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in January. Former England cricket captain Mike Brilly was reminiscing on his interactions with the late Queen Elizabeth II. Our former Tom Martin was reflecting on a soil event he'd attended at Althorp House, Diana's childhood home. Actor and writer Sheila Hancock was questioning whether we've all become too emotional, while Anglican priest Alice Goodman was frustrated with archaic churchyard regulations. This month, our new young life, Alice Garnett, is reflecting on a Christmas encounter with her younger self and her ex-boyfriend, while psychiatrist Rebecca Lawrence, who has bipolar disorder, discusses her experience of electroconvulsive therapy. Meanwhile, Jason Thomas Fanilia, who is an expert by experience in the asylum system, is concerned about young people in Doncaster. But let's begin with Sheila, who's deeply affected by the death of old friends. Any man's death diminishes me. As I approach my 90th birthday, my contemporaries are dropping like flies, and yes, I am shriveling. When they depart, they take some of my past with them. I'm left wondering if events really happened because the other participants are no longer here for me to check the facts or relive them with me. The recent death of brilliant satirist John Byrd is a case in point. Did I appear in a review devised and directed, mainly in absentia, by this young, wildly erratic, recent Cambridge graduate. On the disastrous first night, did the flying engineer get Robin Ray's wire inextricably caught up in a bit of scenery so that he had to deliver his lines dangling in mid-air for the rest of the first act? And did the costumes not arrive, forcing Cleo Lane to sing a sophisticated ditty called Rubies for a Queen?, adorned in a red velvet curtain secured by safety pins. Have I embellished the fiasco? John and practically all the rest of the cast, though thankfully not Cleo, are not around anymore to ask. In old age, I seldom have conversations about sex. In the newly liberated 60s, with its contraceptive pill and the publication of the female eunuch in 1970, we seemed to talk of little else. Around that time, I was in a review with the devastatingly glamorous Linda Barron, who died last year. I had quite a lot of fun, but nothing compared to her. She was blazingly sexy, and men and the odd woman were enchanted by her. For a while, I basked in her reflected glory, and the dressing room chat was thrilling. I fell in love with our musical director and was flushed with pleasure by his lustful looks from the orchestra pit. Linda was cheerfully unaware of her magnetism. She later had a successful career, mainly in comedy, but I hold on to the image of that beautiful, joyful woman, 
who represented the huge change in the way we celebrated our femininity. Death has no place in the memories of a period when I felt so powerfully alive. The loss of my first deep friendship, forged during the fears and insecurities of the war, has left a gaping wound. Brenda was all that was left of my childhood. Her son tells me that when she died last year, far away in America, she had by her bedside all my books, in which I often wrote about her and our love, for love it was. Was she too trying to hang on to our past? When the country was deeply affected by the death of the Queen, were we loath to let go of a shared history that she personified? Already my memory of the coronation, watched in a neighbour's front room on the newfangled television, is not as vivid as it was, and there is no one alive to fill in the gaps. So what am I left with? as my circle of fellow travellers through life is depleted. In his poem, John Donne points out that as individuals, we are never truly alone. We are involved in mankind. My future is limited, my friends are leaving, but as long as I'm lucky enough to be here, I can still contribute, albeit in small ways, to saving our planet and its inhabitants. I perhaps forget the details of my life. Memory may not be accurate and some are lost to me completely. But I have not forgotten the emotions. I can vividly recall the joy, the laughter, the grief, the occasional ecstasy of my past, if not the details of the course. I cherish the throbbing life of the present. It is there in nature, music, and in observing the delight of my grandchildren. I can warn them to relish the pleasure, and indeed the sadness, of their experiences before those experiences turn into, eventually, half-forgotten memories. While Sheila stresses the importance to her grandchildren of savouring every moment, Harvard Tom has resolved to live life in the present, more on his farm. It was the third day of March 2018 and the beast from the east was raging across the UK. With temperatures at or below freezing and several inches of snow covering the fields, conditions were tough, but the farm looked beautiful. Sometimes my highlights on the farm come in the midst of hardship. That day, Dad and I had parked the Land Rover by the entrance to Trower's Field, named after Mr Trower, who owned the field in the early 1900s, and we were checking the sheep. We brushed snow off the gate and paused before we climbed it, looking over the flock of 200 hoggets, that's sheep that are over a year old, to see if they were lame, unwell, or otherwise in need of attention. Dad pointed to a set of twins born on the farm the previous spring, who were standing together shoulder to shoulder among the large flock. Surveying the scene, I paused. I hope I remember today forever, I recall saying. There was something about that split second, looking across the field to the woodland on the far side, the sheep gathering to meet us at the gate, and the small birds busily foraging in the lee of the hedge. The blanket of snow made the farm look like a postcard. But what made that moment special was the fact that I was with my father. In his late 60s then, I knew he wouldn't be around forever, and I wanted to savour 
the smell of oak leaves and damp grass and the universal hush that snow brings, punctuated only by the bleat of sheep and the crunch of footsteps within. Fear not, reader. At 71 this year, Dad has no intention of going anywhere. The powerful drive of his farming identity still wakes him before dawn every day and urges him outside in all weather conditions. The only indicator of his advancing years are his curses about the recent necessity of a hearing aid and an extra jumper. But I know that one day I'll look for his Land Rover in the gateway as I harvest crops in the summer and it won't be there. I'll yearn for his wisdom on the challenging decisions that farming throws up and we'll have to make do without and I'll have to feed the sheep alone. For now then, I'll be grateful that my job allows me to spend time with Dad, to meet him and Mum each morning before the farm comes to life to discuss the day ahead, or to pop to home to see Lisa, my wife, and interrupt her work for the time it takes to drink a cup of tea. Farming is hard work. The benefits of the view from my office and the closeness to my family don't replace the need to make a profit. Rishi, take note. But I do feel very lucky to have such moments that a nine to five would prevent, which are just as golden in sub-zero snow as they are in the spring sunshine or the summer haze. For 2023, I've resolved to live in the moment as often as I can. There's a lot left to do this winter, from catching up on maintenance jobs like repairing fences, to feeding sheep supplementary barley to keep them in peak condition. In farming, we're always looking ahead to the next season, planning and preparing. The ewes must be ready to give birth in spring and the yearling sheep prime for the market. But when wading through 200 sheep each, jostling to remove the barley from your bucket before you reach the trough, you're prevented from planning anything beyond your next step. You can prepare yourself only for a friendly yet forceful nudge from an ovine colleague. It's all-encompassing and impossible to be anything but present. Psychiatrist Rebecca Lawrence is also reflecting on the value of memories as electroconvulsive therapy has robbed some of hers. Back in September, my life was normal. I worked and wrote and lived with my family. And then out of the blue, things changed. I suspected that I was becoming depressed, perhaps because I've had episodes of severe depression before. Unusually, I wrote a series of poems about how I felt. Then, in October, my mood dropped suddenly and catastrophically, and I could no longer work. There was no obvious precipitant, but there was a precedent for what to do next. I've suffered with bouts of depression over several decades, and have previously been an inpatient, and have had electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. The prospect of repeating either of these options seemed horrible, but so did the alternative of doing nothing. I went with my husband to see my psychiatrist, a professor who has known me for decades. Although I can remember nothing of our meeting, or much of the surrounding time, my husband said I was unable to eat, barely able to drink, and hardly spending any time out of bed. In view of this, the option of outpatient ECT was quickly agreed. My long-term diagnosis is of psychotic depression and bipolar disorder, and I had had multiple ECT courses before, with the main side effect being memory loss. I thought to myself that surely I would be able to retain my memory on this occasion. Surely I could make the effort. Needless to say, I was wrong. My husband tells me that my memory loss was not immediate, but that within about four treatments it was apparent. The whole experience was bizarre and confusing, 
although all the staff I encountered were very kind to me. I suspect I was treated particularly well, given that I'm a psychiatrist in the same hospital, but it felt very odd. I knew all of the treating psychiatrists, but fortunately not the anaesthetists. Being put to sleep by someone I knew would have felt surreal and exposing, which was not completely improbable, given that I work with anaesthetists in the chronic pain service. I was very confused at times, and I imagine it was difficult for anyone to know how best to talk to me. I was also assessed on several occasions by a different psychiatrist to my usual one as he was on leave, and that was even odder, because I knew this other man too. It can't have been easy for anyone. One thing that has been markedly better this time has been being allowed to wear my contact lenses. Previously, I would go blindly through a door in the wall, like that in the story by H.G. Wells, searching somehow for something beautiful, which I never found. Now that I can see what is happening, this makes a huge difference. I feel much less uncertain about the procedure. After the treatment, I did get slowly better, I think, although my memory got incrementally worse. It was quite peculiar. I couldn't remember who the Prime Minister was, or even had been, but given the revolving door at number 10 last year, who can blame me? More problematically, trying to remember the right Christmas presents for my family was a shocker. I'd been working on a novel over the past year. I had no recollection of it. Another feature of my experience was overspending. My husband was rendered slightly exasperated by the arrival in the post of lots of brightly coloured clothing. We managed to work out, by a process of elimination, that I had bought it all for myself. Fortunately, it's very pretty, but I would never have purchased it normally. The memory loss has been particularly confusing in that it's hard to know what I've forgotten, especially in relation to work, or to understand why I made certain decisions. I had a lead role in addiction psychiatry, which I stepped down from during my rapid descent into illness. I wish I could step aside with ease from the rest of my work and life, but this is very hard to do sensibly when ill, and more confusing when I can't remember what I've abandoned. I am less depressed now than I was, but not yet what I would call well. I hope that I won't have more than a few further treatments and that my mood starts to stabilise. Mostly, I just hope my memory returns. The Gen Zer Alice Garnett, a Christmas encounter with her ex-boyfriend, felt like a return to her teenage self. It was Christmas Day, and I, like many other 20-somethings, was spending the holidays sleeping in my childhood bedroom, awkwardly straddling the line between adult and child. I had to continually remind myself, you are not a teenager anymore. Still, I found myself drinking on a bench with my childhood best friend, the woman with whom I'd survived over a decade of bad boyfriends and mean friends. We sipped from cans smuggled from our parents' fridges and swapped life updates. As she reached for her phone to read sweet nothings from her current beau, I reached for my own to see if he had texted back. He hadn't. I rolled my eyes and opened Instagram where I noticed a new message. Long time no see. How's life treating you in the big city? I gasped. No 
fucking way, I said, grabbing my best friend by the shoulder. It was my ex-boyfriend, my sixth form sweetheart, the boy that I broke up with over the phone partway through my first year at university when our attempt to make it work long distance failed. Newcastle to Oxford is an expensive relationship. We hadn't spoken in three years. Knowing that my time at home was fleeting, I popped the question, are you about in the next 24 hours? He was. I frantically reapplied makeup and pulled the best outfit that I could from my sparsely packed suitcase. And I backslid right into my 2017 self. As the populace of Matlock, my small hometown, oft referred to as the gateway to the Peak District, or more generously, the Switzerland of the UK, settled into a post-roast food coma, I stormed up the hill, ignoring the sloshing of cheese and Prosecco in my own stomach. He welcomed me into a house loaded with memories of parties, barbecues and family dinners, all charged with the restless intensity of adolescence. All charged with the restless intensity of adolescence. I pushed past him into the kitchen and shook my head in disbelief at the cupboards, at the kitchen table, at the nook where their washing machine and dishwasher live. He watched, bemused, as I let his typically suburban, middle-class family home wash over me. And, like the nervous teens of bygone times, we snuck around his parents' house, considering every footstep, every breath, as though our lives depended on it. We had a beer and caught up, as promised in our text messages. He said he was going to the gym more. I said that I was writing more. We were both living up to our potential, one way or another. I struggled to contextualise my new, grown-up self with this person who, until that moment, had existed purely as a memory, as a story... Oh, the guy who said he loved dentistry more than he did you. I couldn't bring my usual first date bravado to someone who already knew a less polished, unrefined, neurotic version of me. I burped loudly, unapologetically even. I silently shrugged my shoulders whenever I ran out of witticisms or interesting things to say about myself. We talked and laughed as though we already knew each other, which we did and as though no time had passed, which it had. I kissed him and felt the weight of three years worth of sexual partners pressed against me as I was thrust back in time into a teenage relationship. When I woke up the next morning, I realized I had missed our hometown's annual raft race, guiltily texting my mum, I'm not going to make it. Turned into a large night then? I didn't dignify that with a response. My ex-boyfriend dutifully went downstairs and forewarned his parents. Yes, so, uh, Alice? Um, you remember her. Stayed over last night. We caught up. I made my grand re-entrance downstairs, mascara encrusted on my face. Hi, 
I said in my most casual tone as though I were bumping into his parents in the dairy aisle of our local Sainsbury's. The last time I'd sat in this kitchen, it had been just with his mum after we'd broken up. My university terms were short, so I'd arrived home before my ex. I'd been incredibly close to his family and, to be honest, had shed more tears over losing them than him. His mum had consoled me over a cup of tea. She seemed hopeful that one day we'd find our way back to one another. I'm not sure a one-night stand on Christmas Day was quite what she had in mind. The Anglican priest Alice Goodman, the children in her parish give her faith that the church will survive. Remember, God doesn't like a census. I was filling in the register after a service and the canon was reassuring me that absolute accuracy was not required. The allusion was to the moment in 1 Chronicles 21 when King David conducts a census to find out if he has enough men of fighting age to go to war. In a nutshell, he trusts in himself instead of God, and there are consequences. The Church of England doesn't like a census either, but it can't help itself. The declining number of people attending church has been a fact of life for decades. At this time of year, the emails start arriving from the poor woman at Statistics for Mission, asking for the parish's counts of people at church on an average Sunday morning in October and on the church's major feast days. These numbers are broken down by age group, the old, the not-so-old, and the children. Recently, we've also been asked about attendance during the week. Every year, and especially since 2020, Working out the numbers and sending them in is both tedious and dispiriting. If we have 15 children and their parents at our after-school Wednesday church, we're pleased. But the numbers look pathetic on the forms. Late last year, the 2021 census results on religion were published by the Office for National Statistics. For the first time, less than half the population of the UK ticked the box beside Christian. Some people were shocked, or said they were. Some people were glad, either because this decline presages the dawn of a gloriously emancipated society, or because it indicates the dropping away of nominal Christians and the shining forth of a church purer and stronger in faith. At least, the thought goes, fewer people feel obliged these days to pay vice's tribute to virtue and say they're Christians just to look respectable. The Muslims are doing well, though hardly likely to overtake the Christians in number any time before Gabriel blows his horn, and there are a variety of smaller religions, including some 271,000 Jews, around 10,000 humanists, and 22 million people who profess no religion. So it's not just the poor old Church of England then, as my Methodist and United Reformed friends often remind me, as they negotiate gracefully the spiritual and practical matters that go with dying. Meanwhile, my Jewish family gives me a look and goes on being Jewish in their various ways, living in the diaspora, in societies in which they will always be part of a tiny minority, 
and raising children who will do likewise. I converted to Christianity in 1989. This is the thing. If those of us who have a religion wanted to persist in the world, we'll pass it on to the next generation. Parents will sit by their toddlers' beds and teach them how to pray before they go to sleep. They'll celebrate the religious holidays, and they'll also tell the stories that go with those holidays. They'll tell their children what they believe and how it shapes how they live, and they won't simplify their doubts. Here in these villages, one church has a growing number of children attending. Some sing in the choir, some go to Sunday school. The smallest ones hang out with their parents on a sofa by the vestry, play with the toys and just take everything in. Organ, choir, smells, mostly coffee and flowers because we don't have incense, and the way people look when they're praying. The older ones receive communion, and most of the younger ones are brought for a blessing. I remember from my own childhood how powerful it feels to receive a blessing. Some of the teenagers are preparing to learn how to administer communion, standing next to me as I offer the consecrated bread with the words, the body of Christ, and presenting the chalice to members of the congregation. Their place is at the center of our life. There are also a vast number of children who don't go to church. I've baptized some of them. I don't know whether their parents read them the Bible stories we give them or say prayers with them at night, but I'm firmly convinced that their parents pray for them. Oh, God counts as a prayer here. There are middle-aged men in the nearby villages, the Wilbrahams, still saying the prayers they learnt at the village school, where every prayer begins, hands together, eyes closed. Will the church die? I don't believe so, though the desperate and unintentionally comic efforts from Church Central to make it grow are likely to fail. The sins of the institution, abuse of every kind, racism, sexism, homophobia, have driven many good people away over the years. It's hard to convince them to stay, not least when the Church always seems to care more about how it looks than about how it actually is. But what if it does die? Aren't we the people with the crazy belief in resurrection? Sports writer Emma John manages to kick her online bad habit of refreshing the cricket scores. But does live sports still matter to her? Most of us these days have accrued some form of digital bad habit. Yours perhaps is doom scrolling the news, hate watching TikTok, or furtively following the famous pets of Instagram. Mine is a compulsion to refresh a feed of live scores from around the world, many in sports that I've never even watched. It is a debilitating and fruitless pursuit. I neither want nor need to know that it's two-all in the Highland League match between Bucky Thistle and Deveron Vale, or that Usman Nurmagomedov has the upper hand against Patriki Frere in their MMA prize fight. All of this information enters my system only to pass straight through it without adding the slightest benefit, like celery. It neither entertains nor delights, also like celery. And yet, given a few spare moments between tasks, my phone hand will be thumbing through the app before my conscious brain has caught on. 
This winter, I broke the spell, temporarily at least. Apparently, the best way to disconnect from social media is to know that there's something on there that you really, really want to avoid. In this case, it was the results of England's three test matches in Pakistan, games which started at 5am and that I had recorded to watch at a less offensively early time. Work and other commitments intervened, and before I knew it, I wasn't merely a few hours adrift of the action, but an entire week. In the good old days, before smartphones, after the invention of the VHS, it was considerably easier to be a sports fan who had missed the game but recorded it for later. You just needed to observe certain rules. Never listen to the radio on the hour. Stick your fingers in your ears on public transport. Issue an immediate ban on sports talk when you meet up with friends. Now that bus stops can broadcast live updates, you need to go into a self-imposed purder if you want to keep your powder dry. For most of December then, I had to cut myself off not only from my regular apps, but also from every other form of sporting headline. Each time my hand reached towards my phone, or my fingers started tapping in the URL of a new site, I had to catch myself and think strategically about what I was doing. The result was a delicious holiday from my usual onslaught of media. It also manifested something more magical. A genuinely heightened sense of suspense and excitement for the outcome of the series I was watching. It didn't hurt that the series turned out to be, spoiler alert, one of the all-time greats. Last summer, Sky ran an advertising campaign with the slogan, It's only live once. The broadcasting megalith was clearly feeling threatened. Increasing numbers of fans are getting their sporting fix through social media, where instant updates and highlight clips of wonder goals, crunching tackles, soaring sixes and knockout punches are universally available. If sports lovers can feed their craving by grazing on the best bits of events, at their own personal convenience, do they need to watch an entire game anymore? An exaggeration, perhaps, but an interesting thought experiment nonetheless that reveals some unexpected truths about one of the world's primary sources of entertainment. It was only a couple of generations back that you pretty much had to be present at the ground to watch your team in action. And that didn't stop hundreds of thousands of people following their clubs and their favourite players second-hand through written match reports that they could only access the following day. So yes, live sport does only happen once. That is an integral part of its appeal. And yet, in reality, none of us have the leisure capacity to consume it all as it happens, which is why highlights packages and shows like Match of the Day evolved. Shared snippets on social media are merely the latest technological extension to the same way we've been enjoying sport since the Victorians first began to promote and organise it. The question we need to be asking ourselves is, is it okay to record a match and fast forward through the boring bits? Thank you so much for tuning into our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen now to hear more from our family of writers in March and tune into our regular podcast, the Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. And if you enjoyed hearing from our lives columnists, then escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect magazine from the newsstand now. Or go to our website where you can enjoy reading from Isabel Hilton, Jonathan Powell, 
Dayan Sujit and many more. Goodbye and see you next time.